company. I know you're lying. I see you, Chris. Uh, so by mere numbers, we notice that New Year's resolutions typically don't get followed through on, right? Whether it's getting in shape, going to the gym more often, reading X number of books per year, whatever it may be, it's difficult. Often uh, we want to do something better last year, do something better this year than what we previously did last year. We want to self-improve. We want things to be different. We want to change the course of what's been going on. But for many of us, we look back on the previous year, and it's difficult. We have so much pain, so much anger, so much hardship from the previous year that, man, we really hope this next year is different for us. Maybe last year was when you lost your spouse or when you lost a parent or another loved one. Maybe last year was when you battled with a sickness or a disease that finally took something so precious from you. Maybe last year uh, is when your marriage took a turn for the worst. You just feel like you don't know the person who's next to you anymore. Maybe last year you were cheated on, betrayed, or alone. Maybe last year was one of the hardest years of your entire life when you face the unimaginable, the things that you've heard about before but you never thought that they could happen to you. How can we be hopeful in the midst of this unimaginable grief, this unimaginable situation that we may find ourselves in? How are we supposed to be hopeful in that moment? How can we trust that God is good when we're in the middle of the worst case scenario? I know that's what you're supposed to do, and that's the church thing to do, right? We're supposed to trust in God whenever we face any kind of difficult situation, but how practically am I supposed to do it? Whenever my daughter has a stroke on her second day of life and ends up in the NICU, how am I supposed to be helpful? hopeful? It's a question that I've had to think about a lot, because as many of you know, that's my story. God, I know I'm supposed to trust you. But how am I supposed to do that now? What good can come out of this situation? Maybe you've asked this question yourself. You know, everything happens for a reason. That thing that people say to you doesn't feel so great when it feels like you're actually walking through hell. God, how am I supposed to trust you whenever I am facing this unimaginable, horrible, awful situation? See, the disciples weren't too unfamiliar with this kind of thing. As we read about this morning, uh, they faced an unimaginable situation as well. One of their own, someone who was numbered among them, Judas Iscariot, betrayed them. And more importantly, he betrayed his master, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which would lead later to his arrest and crucifixion. Now, this was, this was someone who had been handpicked by Jesus, someone who was numbered among them, someone who ate and drank with them, someone who sailed in boats with them, fed 5,000 with them, someone they loved. Sometimes we forget that about Judas. He was with them the whole time. He shared in their ministry. He was one of them. This betrayal is serious. 
Never in their wildest dreams did the disciples think that one of their own would betray them. And then when he's so guilt-ridden with what he's done, he goes off and he kills himself. Maybe this is an unimaginable situation that many of you have experienced. When we lose someone so precious, whether it's through a natural or an unnatural cause, whether it's through something taking their life or them taking their own lives. Never in their wildest nightmares did the disciples think they'd be facing a situation like this. So what are you supposed to do? I mean, the disciples got to be wondering this question themselves. What do we do in this situation? What do we do now? I encourage you this morning to open up your Bibles with me to Acts 1, because uh, we're going to be diving into the text and trying to figure out what the disciples do whenever they face the unimaginable situations and what that can teach us about being hopeful and trusting God whenever we too face these unimaginable situations. Now in Acts 1, Jesus has just ascended into heaven following his resurrection from the dead. And then he commissions his disciples to go out into all the nations, all the world, to the ends of the earth and be his witnesses witnesses to his resurrection, witnesses to what he's done. They're supposed to go out. They're supposed to be sent. But before they can actually go, before they can set their goals and their resolutions for whatever their ministry is going to be, before they can live into the promise that Jesus has set out before them, they're reminded of what they lost. Beginning in verse 12, we read that then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. See, there's a noticeable absence among the disciples. If you were counting along with me, I counted 11 disciples. I don't have that many fingers. But there are 11 disciples. We're missing Judas Iscariot. This is not the 12. This is not the beautiful 12 number that we get all throughout the Gospels. The 12 that did this with Jesus. The 12 that did this with Jesus. This is now 11. It feels different. It is different. And just so there's no confusion about who is missing, Luke actually goes so far as to name each and every disciple to make it blatantly obvious who's missing. See, we're constantly reminded of what's missing. Isn't that how our losses often work? Whenever we experience pain or grief or something along those lines, we're constantly reminded of what's not there. We look to our left or our right, and that person's not there anymore. We try to do the things we normally do, and we can't. We're constantly being reminded of what's been lost. See, we wake up thinking that things will finally normalize at some point, uh, but like the disciples, we kind of feel like there's a part of us that's still missing. Maybe we feel incomplete. It's not the way it used to be. So how, how can we be hopeful? And we're constantly being reminded of what we don't have, constantly being reminded of what's gone wrong. 
Well, the first thing that this passage teaches us is that our present situations are not a surprise to God. See, our text says in verse 15, In those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And skipping down to verse 20, it says, For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. See, Peter proclaims in his address to this group of believers that this horrible situation, no matter how horrible or terrible this present situation is that the disciples are facing, it was already known to God. It was already spoken about through David in the Psalms. See, in the aftermath of this horrible thing, we, we only get in kind of a parenthetical note that you see in verses 18 and 19. And that's because that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is to show us that God knows what we're going through. God has always known. He's saying that the Holy Spirit was able to speak through King David way before the present situation even happened. And that gives us some kind of comfort, right? Well, how, do, how does that work? Isn't that just reading into the text what you want it to mean? Isn't that appropriating David's words to fit a present context and situation? I mean, you don't need a seminary degree to know that's probably problematic, right? Making the Bible say whatever it is you want it to say? You can nod along with me, that's okay. But I don't think that's what Peter's doing in here. In fact, that's not what Peter's doing here. Peter's actually teaching us about a timeless nature that Scripture has. How words written so long ago in a completely different context can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, speak to our present hurts and our present situations. Notice the distinction there. This is through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit working to comfort those of us whenever we go through trials, whenever we have hurts. See, our struggles and our hardships, though they may look differently from those in the text of Scripture, they speak to the human experience. They speak to things that we all have gone through at some time, or we may go through at some time. This is why we continue to study the Bible. This is why we continue to have Bible studies and study the Scriptures for ourselves, because we believe that each time we come to the text, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God speaks to his people. Amen? This is good news. The book that we read in front of us is not a dead document. No, it is alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, for God, there's nothing new that's under the sun. God knows. He's always known. See, and Peter asserts that God knew that their situation would happen, and he even goes so far as to actually say that it was necessary for it to happen. That's a hard pill to swallow, right? How could something so painful that hurts so much be necessary? But it was a necessary step for God's redemptive plan. Judas's betrayal sent Christ to the cross for our sins. 
Judas's betrayal, no matter how horrible it was, was always a part of God's plan. See, nothing's out of God's control. See, while the situation looks terrible when you're so close to it, the beauty of God's story unfolds as we take a step back and we see how it plays out in his history of redemption. It's kind of like uh, one of those mosaic pictures, maybe you've seen these before, that are made up of all of these individual little snapshots. And, and sometimes the snapshots are all taken from the same corpus. Uh, maybe they relate to one another. Uh, but oftentimes they don't. Sometimes they're just little pictures of random events with no correlation between the two of them. But as you take a step back from the mosaic, you start to see how that little tiny picture plays into the larger story. Maybe you see something that you didn't see before, and you take a step back and you see even more of it. In a similar way, God has been orchestrating our lives and his history of redemption from the very beginning. And sometimes to us, it looks like they're just these individual little snapshots that have no relation to one another. God, why is this here? I don't know why this is here. It doesn't make sense that it's here. And God's not taking these individual snapshots and these situations and he's trying to make it work. Oh, what could I do with that? No, he's always known exactly how it would fit into his story and his narrative that he's writing. Like the master artist or the master novelist, God has been writing a story that includes every single part of our lives. Nothing is out of his control. He's not trying to piece together the situations to make it work. No. He's been writing a story from the beginning of time that we get to be involved in, that we get to be characters in. See, he's not ignorant to what you're going through right now. He's not ignorant. No matter what the situation is, he's not taken by surprise. He's not scrambling for a backup plan. No, he's in control. Now, this doesn't mean that God is causing these bad things to happen. Hear me clearly when I say that. It's not like he wills or he wants us to face these horrible trials. This is why we actually pray along in the Lord's Prayer. God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, because we want God's will to come into our world and fix what is broken. We pray that God would redeem the things that are painful, the things that hurt in our world. But what this does mean, however, is that we can rest in God's sovereign plan. And sovereignty is a word for understanding that God is in ultimate control of our entire situation, of our life from beginning to end, of our world from beginning to end, of everything from beginning to end. He's always in control. See, David didn't know how his words would fit into God's story. But, but Peter actually is able to pick up on this, and he sees what God has always been up to in his immediate plan. See, we're actually going to look at some of the quotations that, that Peter brings out in this text uh, if you didn't catch this and you didn't see the little footnote in your Bible, he's quoting from two separate psalms, the first of which we're going to look at, and that's Psalm 69. Uh, but I encourage you to, to look also at the other psalm, Psalm 109, because I think it gives us a good context of what's going on, what, what Peter is drawing on from these psalms of David, because he understands 
the present situation in a way that brings light to what he's going on, going through. Psalm 69 uh, paints this vivid picture of drowning, of being surrounded by enemies and, and surrounded by water and crying out for help. And just so you can kind of get a taste of it, they're going to be up on the screen right now. Uh, it says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. And then he goes on to say, answer me, Lord. Out of the goodness of your love and your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me from my foes. I mean, do you hear the desperation in David's words there? This sounds like someone who's sinking. This sounds like someone who's in over their head. Their enemies are around them. They feel like they're drowning. They're sinking. And God is the only one that can save them. That's the pulse that Peter is tapping into here. See, when we're drowning in these unimaginable situations, when we're drowning in the worst-case scenarios, the things that can cripple us and throw us into the deep, we can cry out along with David. Lord, answer me. And we're assured that God will. God will answer us. I know. I hear you. You see, the psalm ends by saying that the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. See, God knows what we've been through. It's not a surprise to him, and he hears our cries of desperation when we cry out to him, our laments when things are too tough for us. We're encouraged to lament, to cry when things are hard. We're encouraged to ask for help when we need help. We're not supposed to push everything under a rug for God. No, we're supposed to show him what we're going through, to ask for help when we need help. See, he knows our hurts and our situations, even the things that we don't want to talk about, and he hears us when we cry out, God, I need you. So yes, God hears us, and yes, he cry, hears us when we cry out. He knew that this all would happen, but, but where's the light at the end of the tunnel? Knowing is one thing, what is he going to do about it, right? We, we pray that God's will would be done. We pray that he would make things right. So where's the doing aspect, right? This is what we often ask for whenever we pray for God. God, I need you to do something now. And it's okay to pray those prayers. So where's the light at the end of the tunnel? See, this text goes on because it's not done. And I'm so thankful it's not done. Because it, this text goes on to teach us that God will provide for our needs. Verse 21 says that, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. See, the disciples have a very specific need. In fact, their need is so specific uh, because they need someone who can testify to Jesus' entire ministry from start to finish. 
from the time that he was baptized to the time he was crucified, buried, and rose again. Not too many people can fit that job description if you were thinking logistically. I mean, in fact, whenever they bring people forward, they only find two people that fit the job description. I mean, that in and of itself is pretty miraculous, right? I'd be pretty ecstatic if I found two people with that specific requirement. I'd be so happy I'd want to bring both of them on. Hey, we'll have 13 disciples. What a great idea, right? I mean, don't, doesn't God owe the disciples because they went through the unimaginable? Maybe we think like that sometimes. Maybe we think that God owes us whenever we go through trials. That we deserve a double blessing because, oh God, you know what I went through. Can you make it better now? Actually, can you make it better than it was before? But that's not how God's economy works. See, God provides for his people in the exact need that they have. See, God is, acts in a way of a parent providing for their child. See, he knows what they need and when they need it. Children will often ask for more than they need. Children will often ask for their specific needs to be filled in their own timing, but God in his infinite wisdom knows exactly what his children need and when they need it sometimes even more than they know. And instead of being the demanding children, the disciples pray to the one who knows best, the one who's always been in control. In verse 24, it says, Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belonged. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Notice the past tense in there. Show us which of these two you have chosen. This has always been a part of God's plan. Like we said before, God is not scrambling for some kind of backup plan. He always had this in place. And in fact, it's already completed. Sometimes it just takes the disciples humbling themselves to say, God, show us what your plan is because we're lost. We don't know what to do in this situation. See, God is in the business of continually making right the wrongs of this world. And that doesn't mean that every situation that we face is simply going to look like a replacement. But no, the heart of this issue is not replacement, but it's God caring for the specific needs of his people. It's God seeing the hurt of each individual and saying, this is what you need in his infinite wisdom. God will provide. See, when there's no way that people can provide for themselves, God steps in. He meets the needs of his people and cares for them in a way that no one else can, in a way that only he can. See, God's always in control of their situations in the same way he is always in control of our situations. He knows exactly what we need and his perfect care because he loves us. He knows us. So how can we trust God's plan whenever we've gone through the unimaginable? See, even in the worst possible situations, we can trust 
our God because he is sovereignly caring for his people. Maybe it's something we've heard before, but I think it's a good reminder. Even in the worst possible situations that we face, God is continually and sovereignly caring for his people. He has not forsaken us. He has not forgotten us. No, he cares intimately for each and every one of us. Some of you may still be waiting for God to provide for your needs. And it may feel like it's been a lifetime of waiting. Scripture constantly reminds us that God draws near to the brokenhearted. So that when we cry out along with David in Psalm 69, Save me, O God. He hears us. He knows us. When we're going through the unimaginable, we can be comforted by the timeless words of Scripture, as well as this community of faith that God has surrounded us with. His care can look very much like the person sitting in the same pew as you, like your spouse or your family, like that person who maybe you keep seeing in your life, who keeps showing up. Lean into his care. Lean into this community that he has given around you because God knows exactly what you need. He placed you here in this church, in this pew, on this Sunday, for a reason. It's all a part of his plan. Are we going to try to fill in the dots for God and say, oh, this is what you're trying to do? Are we going to take a step back and say, God, show me what your plan is? Show me what your plan has always been. See, no matter what life may throw our way, we can rest assured, brothers and sisters, that our God is in control and that he intimately cares for his children. We can still have so many why questions, and I know that sometimes I have so many why questions about my daughter, and some of those may never be answered until I meet Jesus face to face. But our God is a God over the unimaginable, over every situation and any situation that we may face. He is the one who is sovereignly over every single thing that life can possibly throw our way. And yet he cares so intimately for each and every one of his children. And this is the same God that invites us to the table, the same God that invites us to come to his altar not because we are perfect, but because we are broken. Not because we have everything figured out, but because we need him intimately. This is the God we serve. Now we're going to take this time to prepare our hearts to come to his table. Broken as we may be, God invites us.